Well, another great conversation there. I had young Asa Santiago on, who I've been wanting to speak to for ages. And uh, it was a fantastic conversation. He is so knowledgeable. He's so young as well. Amazing knowledge he's uh, he's gathered. So what did we get into? We got into cleansing and which ones work and which don't, what doesn't work. What else do we get into? We got into when the carnivore diet doesn't work or some problems that are not quite so well identified with the carnivore diet or at least the adaptation to it and the problems that might be there that it doesn't sort out immediately like a, a magic bullet. So Ace has got some great views on that, well worth listening to for any carnivore that is have, having a little bit of uh, issues with uh, transitioning towards that diet or even when they're, they're some months or some years into it, certain things can can have happened from their, their previous uh, uh, diets and lifestyle. Um, we got into supplementing. We got into iodine, the importance of fish. We got into distilled water. We got into Ace's views on uh, on on milk and dairy in general, which I think, uh, you know, we pretty much agree on. And uh, there we go. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm going to have to get him back for part two. There's a lot more uh, that we could chat about. So enjoy and look at the other great episodes. And <clears throat> there'll be links below to all Ace's stuff. There'll be links below to uh, my big fat challenge that that I do with Ben Hunt. Um, if you want to join that. Um for any support with all of this sort of diet and lifestyle stuff, enormous amount of resources on there um consults details below in my link tree or in the show notes or whatever however i'll put it together this time i'm kind of disorganized and you know like subscribe to the youtube channel if you um if you're listening to this on a podcast platform then consider hitting the donate button and help me get these out because i've got a lot more great guests lined up and uh anyway hope you enjoy this great conversation with uh Asa Santiago. Enjoy. Son of a lighthouse keeper Through coins and a wishing well Prayed for a love to call his own A love to Right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this latest episode of the Red Pill Buddha's podcast. And this is one I've been looking forward to for a while. And this dude, Asa Santiago, I've been wanting to get him on for a while. And I've I've got to say, I mean, he is um, he's probably several years younger than my oldest son. And yet every time I see a post of his, I'm like, where the fuck do you get all this knowledge, mate? It's it's amazing. And it absolutely fascinates me. And, you know, I'm known as this sort of hardcore carnivore. And I'm really not, because I think we all should be open to being wrong and um, and, and and sort of um, sorting out the, the little discrepancies in our knowledge. And Asa has so many amazing views on so many things. So let's get into it. Asa, thank you for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Look, I, 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 there's a podcast you did recently with with Brendan Murphy, and I was listening to that today. And you went a lot into your personal story, and so I'm going to link that underneath if anybody wants to hear that in more detail because it was really interesting and 
kind of entertaining too. So um, I'm going to link that underneath. But kind of a bit more briefly, how have you managed to gather this much info on all, all this health stuff in in such a such a short time? Really, I think. I, I mean, are you studying this like 23 hours a day? I'm a, I'm a hundred years older than you, and and you know I've, I've I think that I've been studying forever, and yet you blow me away with so much stuff. How'd you come to all of this? Uh yeah, uh, it goes hand in hand with kind of my past a little bit, but I, you know, I was unschooled after middle school, and that might have been a big part of it. My mother kind of broke apart the box, so to speak. A lot of kids when they go to public school, private school, even homeschool, they're getting put into a certain kind of box and learning sphere that they have to operate within. So I was pretty much unhinged uh, in a sense. But even back then, I had such bad ADD slash ADHD. I was real uh, incapable of focusing on anything but something that I'm really, really into. And, you know, that's pretty typical of people who have ADD. but I would say that, you know, with mine, and, and I don't know that this is uh, something that happens with everyone who has ADD slash ADHD is like real obsessive patterns. Um, and that's what caused me to learn very rapidly. I would read anywhere from, and this is, sorry, to give some context, when I was 22, I had a romantic failure and then it led to me seeing my health problems. That led me to becoming obsessed about health. Prior to that, I was still always a perfectionist with everything. At the, the first job I had was Starbucks. I had had to know everything within their gigantic log of rules that they had. I was probably the worst person to work with, but like also the best employee. And I've changed since then. I'm not anything like that anymore. <laughs> but uh, it was, I've always been that way, like real particular about details. Because that is probably probably more part of my nature more than this like ADD or anything. Uh, but I I started obsessed about my health, so that ended up pushing into that. And I, uh, you know, within I started with articles first. Like Doctor Axe was like the first guy, and then Doctor Eric Berg. Uh, I, I was interested in what they were saying, but I'm really discerning, and also largely because of my mother's influence on that. She taught me to be this way to question everything and everyone and all at all times. And so she had also told me the real deep, really deep dive topics and get to the root of things. So, and I've always been that way naturally. So when I would, I would read these articles, I tried to find the citations. So I couldn't find them. I had to verify them and see the science on it and then understand the literature and the processes they went through to get to that answer. Because I'm not willing to accept an answer or like something as like truth unless I can really feel that truth. Something that I could actually replicate with my own body and see the results of. And so that's always been my life and mission with all of that is representing that truth and the merit structure of it all. So I never recommended anything to anyone I don't think works uh, in, in a sense that I've used it myself or with others. Um, I, I will lightly recommend things that other people I know that I, tr- I trust have done that I haven't necessarily done. I just suggest like, oh, look into this a little more yourself. I haven't done it, but I'm starting to see a lot of great anecdotes for it. So maybe you should consider. Um, so generally, that that's how I, I learned really fast. Is uh, it's the, the the ADD obsessive patterns. I was reading, gosh, after the articles, uh, the article phase I had, which was like only a few weeks, 
uh, I went into getting right into learning epidemiological and nutritional literature. Uh, and I was just, just going hard into that. And some, some days I was hitting like 20 or 40 studies in a day. Um, I would also pursue them based on like my own experience. Uh, so I would try to find all the literature that exists surrounding the symptoms that I had or all of the experiences that I was uh, having in that moment. And then I would theorize what I could do with other concepts in health. So I would look for more literature on reinforcing that theory and then being able to apply it in real time. So there's been a lot, like uh, we might get to, into this later, but a lot of experiments that I've run with my health uh, based on these theories that uh, a lot of them have, have had great results. Some of them totally failed. So, yeah. No, that's brilliant. I mean, one, one of the things I've heard you talking about are these, um, these sort of cleanses and stuff and all these things that people get obsessed with. And, and I must have tried hundreds of them back in sort of 2010, 2011, when I got sick. And, you know, there I was with all sorts of poultices stuck on me and herbs in me and spinach smoothies that just gave me kidney stones and all of this kind of thing and hanging on to Hulda Clark's like, you know, electrode things to get rid of parasites. And none of it really ever seemed to work. I mean, what what is it that um, that you think about these cleanses? Do they really work? I've never really found one that actually properly works short of feeding the body exactly what it's supposed to be fed on an emotional, you know, electromagnetic and diet level and, and whatever, and allowing the body to deal with it. I mean, are there any ones that stand out to you that that actually work people always come to me and i'm sure they do they come to you as well because you work with a bunch of clients saying will this work shall i do this shall i do that cleanse shall i do this herbal protocol shall i do are they all nonsense or some of them work what do you reckon uh yeah i think that some work like for instance uh there's a guy you just posted about his gallstones right he pulled them all out with his liver cleanse i would say like liver cleanses can be incredibly potent but they can also be incredibly damaged so you have to be, you have to weigh your options. So like if, if someone comes up to me with the fact that they've been developing gallstones ever since swapping to a low carbohydrate diet, um, and they might not be quite aware if they have like a, a yeast called candida in their liver and gallbladder, or maybe they have um, other parasite genera in their liver that are just taking up hold, um, you know, liver flukes as an example. Uh, there's enough literature out there within uh, not human studies, but other uh, mammal related studies uh, kind of stipulating in some ways that there are some parasites that uh, are strongly correlated with the formation of gallstones. So I try to help people understand there are other possible routes, their gallstone formation. Like, yes, you can cleanse a real hardcore cleanse with a bunch of Epsom salt and, and olive oil and some tart cherry juice. And that will do the job for sure, but it's harsh as heck. You'll get really sick and it is effective. Like you can even wash out your bowels with it. It'll, it will do more than just the liver. Um, so these cleanses can help. It's just that they're really, really harsh. Uh, that's particularly with the liver and gallbladder flesh. Uh, and they're different variations. Yeah, before we move off from that one, it, it was it was probably I'd agree with you that it was the one thing that really helped me back in the day. And I think I've done about 60 plus of them now. And I, I don't do them much anymore. I don't feel the need to do them anymore. But they they used to take away inflammation. They used to make me feel great. It was it was very sad that the liver flush was <clears throat> perhaps the um, 
the highlight of my month back in like 2011 because I didn't know really so much what else to do. But, you know, when you've got like a, a, I I see a lot of good results with the liver flush, all sorts of things, particularly skin issues, you know, with the skin maybe being one of the other organs of detox. Once that calms down, you can see that maybe the liver is is becoming a little more um, efficient. But with with the liver flush, if somebody's got an actual gallbladder full of gallstones, so there, there is a bit of a fear mongering out there that if you do shift them and you don't always, you can get them stuck in a bile duct or whatever, and it can be actually worse. Um, do you think that's possible? Or do you think that there is any uh, validity in this idea that, you know, I, I, I'm not into medications at all, but I have seen this work that you use uh, a sodiol to shrink down the gallstones Um but they never prescribed that because when they put them back on the diet that caused the gallstones in the first place or whatever, they, they always see them come back. So they just get knife happy and just cut the gallbladder out. And so many people, I think, have lost their gallbladders without any need to. But do you think there is anything that can you, you should there be a sort of caveat on on liver flushes with people who've already got gallstones? And is there a better way than a sodiol or maybe a chanca piedra that seems to be a bit hit or miss? Is there any way of actually shrinking down gallstones before you do the, the, the liver flushes to avoid that maybe uh, bile duct blockage danger, if that even exists? Uh, yeah, I mean, my my primary method that's outside, say, the liver flush is dry fasting. Um, I found that while fasting, like, intermittently and, like, through light extension or caloric restriction or with water, um there are some studies like reflecting that you can actually end up building up more gallstones in this period because, uh, you know, the bile starts to build up and it starts to, you know, I don't know the exact biochemical process, but apparently gallstones start to form after the, sometime within this period and exchange. Um, and I'm not quite sure if it has to do with like, you know, glycoconjugated bile salts or, or toroconjugated uh, not quite sure the biochemistry there between that cholesterol and the whole nine yards, but um, I don't necessarily give that much credence because, but then again, like I only really do dry fasting. So my whole paradigm is a little different. Uh, I, I sometimes do water fasting. So water fasting helps me to clear out like toxins in my system uh, if I'm feeling really overburdened. Um, so generally, like my the first time I even heard about gallstones was happening like it, it goes back to my experiential side i had dry fasted three and a half days and this was the period that i was trying to uh make my body accept raw meat uh more efficiently this is why it was really hard it was like three or four years ago i was going really hard into like raw carnivore diet and and my body was just not accepting the raw meat to the extent that other people might be able to i could not get more than a pound in a day so i was frequently eating like uh, as much raw meat as i could and then i would dry fast for eight hours and i would eat raw meat dry fast for eight hours and i did that for like gosh 40 days or so um and then i kind of sailed through eating more and not really doing much dry fasting for like another uh, 10 or so days and then at the end of it uh i ended up uh doing a, a, a three and a half day dry fast. And with that, like, like right where underneath the liver kind of anatomically, 
I felt this band-aid feeling sensation. Um, and then within a day, uh, what came out of me was like, like, like so many, uh, rocky yellow ish green stone substances. So I was like, okay, what is that? <laughs> and then I, I found it online. I realized it was also, um, so I was like, oh, wow, crazy. So dry fasting pulls out gallstones. Um, and I don't know that and this is the thing that I have a theory around and I haven't been able to fully verify yet, but I think it has to do with adaptation. Like if your body's trying to make efficient the digestion of raw animal fats like that, which would probably metabolically be quite an exchange, if, you know, it might be quite difficult to digest that raw fat. Um, I might need efficient bile uh, production to do that. And my fasting might, you know, my body might have been trying to adjust itself to meet that new environment where I'm eating nothing but raw meat. And the gallbladder became a priority in that moment versus other things in my body that could have needed to be healed. Uh, I believe this about fasting. I think it is inherently adaptive to what you're dealing with in that current moment. Um, there are other things that I've, I've noticed through dry fasting that have kind of a, an adaptive way changed me. Uh, but yeah, so the, the gallstones, uh, I think there's an ultimate cause though, uh, and that we could just stop them from forming altogether, uh, not just metabolically, but through other means, um, like with microbes and, and heavy metal toxicity and the like. Um, but yeah, uh, dry fasting is a good option for people. Um, I know that some people on some level get some headway with like, visceral manipulation uh or something they had go to someone who's like really good at dealing with those uh those you know the, the organs and, and the massage of the area uh, and massaging the gallbladder um people also will eat some a lot of citrus to kind of break down stones or they're taking uh ap apple cider vinegar uh this can have some benefit there are other st stone dissolving programs out there that i've never used that people around me have used and said that it worked for them. Um, there's all kinds of methods to keep yourself, keep your gallbladder from just going out. Um, you could also just go on the carnivore diet and that just ameliorates it too. Like I've seen people who have gallbladder attacks go into a carnivore diet where they eat more and more and more fat. Then all of a sudden they have like one big, you know, sense of pain, but then it's all gone forever. So, you know, the body is probably cycling out the stones to, you know, when it's producing a ton of bile and it's pushing the stones out gradually or dissolving them outright. Um, I think carnivore diets inherently, and actually, I don't even need to think it is, it's probably, it, it, probably be able to verify it with all kinds of literature, but, you know, gut acidity goes up. So not in a sense of going up in pH, but like down in pH, but higher acidity. So your stomach acid will increase, uh, increase uh, or have lower pH ranges. Uh, your stomach acid will go up. Your duodenum, which is the first section of your intestine, small intestine, that'll become more acidic. Uh, this all makes it more efficient, more uh, a better environment for meat-based eating. Um, but yeah, so those are some options, you know, for people generally outside of like liver and gallbladder flushes. Yeah, that was that was interesting. I mean, I'd never thought of uh, dry fasting as getting rid of uh, gallstones, and I heard you mention that on on Brendan's podcast, and that's great. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of it. I wish I'd known about it back in the day because when I was doing most of my fasting back in 2010, 2011, um, 
I, I was doing water fasting. I didn't do any ma- really massive ones. I think 11 days or something was the best. But I was so frightened of food because I was eating the wrong food. And every single time I started eating food again, I'd get this horrendous flare. I couldn't walk, you know. <clears throat> but everything was fine while I was fasting. And so I ended up frightened of fast, frightened of eating and doing these fasts all the time. But my first experience of dry fasting was back in uh, 2019, I think. And I had a, because of the damage to the knee, I had a, a baker's cyst and <clears throat> I didn't even know I had it. And and I remember getting out of my car one day and feeling this sort of little pain in the back of the knee. I didn't think much about it. And by the time I got home, I realized that that knee, which was a bit sort of trashed from the years of inflammation with the arthritis, it was it was moving and feeling better than it had done for years. And I thought, this is a bit weird. I think I know what's happened because I could see that my calf muscle was sort of twice the size of the other one. And it had dumped all the synovial fluid down the calf. And I went in and I was uh, the, the missus and I was saying like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pack a bag. They've got to do something now. They'll give my knee a wash. It'll be great. I'll pack a bag. I'll stay in overnight, you know they'll they'll do it without some steroids maybe and i thought and i went in there and i'm going yeah yeah i think you know the synovium's burst and it's dumped it all down the calf and um i'm i you know take me in give me a knee wash and they said you know uh, for god's sake he said you've just you've just had a bake assist it's burst we're not going to do anything about it now fuck off home i'm like oh shit it's the only time i didn't i, I was disappointed at not having a treatment and i thought right you know and and, and they said um it's i went in for a you know a checkup afterwards they said right that's probably going to take you know months or weeks or months maybe to reabsorb into the body and it was really painful so i did a three-day dry fast and it, it stayed there during the dry fast but in the sort of day after the dry fast it just completely disappeared and i went back to them a week later and i said look nothing there it's completely disappeared uh, and they said what did you do and i said dry fasting oh isn't that dangerous don't you die after three days you know everybody thinks that you do you know i think i think it was actually a four-day one (laughs) but um yeah it's amazing at mopping up all that sort of unnecessary cellular and intracellular water and it it goes after so many things but the idea that uh that that it can uh get rid of gallstones as well is really interesting so what do you think about this dry fasting what is what is it exactly that does it? Is it the stem cells kicking in? Is it what they call this acidotic crisis that people argue about which day it comes in? You know, what is the serious benefit of this? Is it the depletion of deuterium in the cells, the apoptosis and autophagy? What do you reckon are the actual advantages that really help? And also, I heard you say about dangers of it sometimes as well, because everything has two sides. Anyway, loads of questions there. But what do you reckon? Dry fasting. <laughs> yeah, um, I think of it as just a more efficient model of water fasting. But then water fasting has different it has different results. Like I had mentioned for myself, it helps me to really detoxify. Um, you know, it helps my lymphatic system get a, you know more action more rapidly. So if I'm getting overburned uh, by toxins that are coming out during the dry fast, um, for instance, if I'm going into a dry fast, uh, like for instance, today, I just ended a dry fast um, at about 68 hours dry, so almost three days. Uh, I was going to keep it longer, but I was starting to get real groggy. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be really annoying for this podcast. So like, it's generally, uh, I will, you know, I'll end them 
uh, to stabilize a little bit. So drink fluids um, and then get like a little bit of B vitamins in me, like a raw liver as an example. Um, so generally that's uh, been my method uh, you know, when it comes to like getting overburdened. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to dry fasting, it's, you know, people speculate on, on like the efficiency of it. You'll see memes all the time about like, oh, it's two times, three times, five times more efficient than water fasting. Um, I'll only be able to speculate as well because I'm not the one who owns Cell Journal and have, have access to, you know, all these labs and, and, and experimentations of people. But I have a good sample pool of clients I've worked with and I have myself. And so I'll say with dry fasting, I could definitely um, safely say it's at least around three times more effective uh, in the sense of like what results I can get um, and the amount of time I'm committing to it. Uh, it could even be up to five times. Uh, it just I think it also depends on the person and their actions. So I think people miss out on a lot of benefits of dry fasting when they're not engaging their environment and they're not engaging their bodies uh, in the moment. So I think that people need to ground. Uh, I think people need to do nose breathing, uh, like almost like a Wim Hof method if, if they can, um, or to also do, they don't need to exercise. Um, I'm also going to say that there's some dangers to that, but there's on the flip side, some benefits. So, uh, I held the, the whole blueprint model with fasting that like, Oh, well, it's like a hunter model where, you're in the morning and you're fasted and your testosterone is going up and you're readying yourself for the hunt. And you know, that hunger makes you more, um, you have more mental acuity and then so you can go and get that hunt done, uh, quite readily and, and effectively. Uh, so that's pretty awesome. Like I, I experience it all the time when I do like an intermittent fast. I mean, you probably experience it. A lot of people experience it. You could just experience it just eating carnivore diet. And, you know, that's why I see carnivores like a metabolic real, you know, like you're eating while, you know, and also fasted. Um, but the dry fasting, you know, if you break it down to the root, uh, the, I would say that the best, most important thing is going to be autophagy. Um, when you're compressing your cells and you're getting rid of that toxic cell water, uh, you're not just getting rid of toxic cell water. I mean, our cells are littered with crumbs. Like there's not a letter literature that'll stipulate exactly what crud you got inside of you, but there's plenty of labs out there that can imply it. And the labs that I've seen, I'm like, wow, people are dirty. They've got a lot of stuff in their cells. So when you have, you give your body the opportunity to clean itself like that, you're removing xenobiotics. So xenobiotics are like chemicals, foreign agents added to your body. You could technically call a heavy metal a xenobiotic, but I don't. So you know, xenobiotics, like plastics, microplastics, phthalates, or microplastic thing. Sorry about that. Um, but generally, they're, uh, when they're in the cell like that, uh, they can cause any, you know, anything from like methylation disruption to, uh, you know, general cellular dysfunction with, you know, converting uh, energy with, you know, or creating energy with ATP um, and, and the electron, electron transport chain. Um, there's even, you know, events where, uh, like the, like the endocrine disruption can lead to points of like, there was this one study I read, uh, where phthalates, uh, like a small amount of them within a boy's cell prenatally, 
uh, say for instance, like they're in the womb, um, like a mother's plastering on makeup while she's pregnant. Uh, this can make that kid uh, like slightly effeminate or, you know, incredibly masculine, like over aggression status uh, if they have too many phthalates in their cells. So that's just xenobiotics. And then you got heavy metals, right? Um, these are incredibly uh, toxic from a, in, in a total range. Most people know how heavy metal toxicity goes. You know, you, you've got lead, you know, you, you've got um, mercury, um, you, know, it, it, you know, I think, you know, and, and some in, in, imbalances too, like minerals, uh, you know, if you overdose the magnesium and you, you send in too much zinc, uh, too much copper, these create imbalances that are, you know, a, a nearly just a, as bad of a problem. Um, so, uh, but within the cell, uh, it's really important to clear the heavy metals, the xenobiotics, and the microbes out. So there's tons of intracellular microbes. This is the one that I'm a little more specialized in. Uh, I wouldn't be able to deep dive on ionomics with you got with you about uh, like mineral balancing and whatnot. Um, but I know lightly uh, the whole process. Um, but when it comes to microbes, most important part. Uh, is understanding that there are specific kinds that are they're eukaryotic, so they you know have a cell wall, a nucleus. They're smarter, uh, and they're bigger uh, than like a prokaryote, which is a bacteria or archaea. And so, if the if like fungi and parasites access your cell, it's so much worse than like the xenobiotics and the head metals because they they'll pull pull things into the cell. They can they can pull xenobiotics and they can pull heavy metals and whatever they want. Uh, and further too, they can take over cell, uh, cellular machinery. Um, this is where I actually believe uh, cancer is primarily caused. Um, I think that when cellular machinery is taken over by these, these you know, pyrocytes or fungi, um, this is a point where the immune system gets involved and then you eventually have uh, cellular clumping and that can eventually turn into a malignancy. Um, that's a whole other topic, but I that that me, might be why paleomedicina is so successful with uh, using carnivore diets to put cancer patients into remission, uh, because a can a, a carnivore diet is inherently incredibly good for suppressing the effects of pathogens across the board. So like they they won't have uh, access to the glucose primarily from like a, a hybridized diet. Uh, standard American diet has plenty of it. They can eat and they have a whole buffet. But with carnivore, they got to change their game. They got to go in hiding most of the time. So anyway, autophagy is really, really important for the cell in the sense of getting rid of what's in there and replacing it. Next, I would say is stem cells. So stem cells are activated after about a day and a half dry, about three days with water at the very least. Um, if you're going off the two times model, of water versus dry, um, but it's all speculation. Really, you can't like absolutely verify that from one person or another. But I'll say from my experience, a day and a half dry uh, is going to. I'll safely say that you're going to get some innate immune system regeneration. So the when you when the stem cells are activated, uh, innate immune cells uh, start to come into uh, supply again, and they're it's not that they're inept anymore. They're actually getting the opportunity to, uh, I'm going to say that they relearn. People call it the innate immune system. They've been saying this in the medical world for over a hundred years now that they don't learn. I don't believe that. I think the innate immune system, when it's regenerated like that after a dry fast, 
they're they're capable of learning the new environment. Uh, it just, and that's just how the immune system has is supposed to be working. But no one in society fasts, so now they're getting sick from everything underneath the sun. That's why you'll see carnivores who still get sick. Um, you you'll see, and so if you're in the carnivore community. You're like, oh well, I'm immune to everything, but why is everyone else getting sick still? You know, a lot of people don't commit to fasting. They don't do the hard work. Um, or maybe, and this is something to go back to your first question, people didn't cleanse. This is another reason why uh, carnivore works and also why it doesn't work. So some people will do carnivore and not get good results. Uh, and they get di they get brief results, but then complex problems start to come in. And then they're seeking people out like me, like, well, I'm eating this lion diet. I've had these benefits, but I'm having other serious issues now. How do I fix it, Asa? But I, I usually tend to bring these people back to ideas of mineral balance and the dealing with uh, the pathogens that you suppress with the carnivore diet. Like people in third world countries economy, like guaranteed they're probably going to have parasites loaded up throughout their intestine. And that's obviously going to interfere with the carnivore diet. So people... Uh, this is why I think it's important to cleanse, but you should do it smart. Like, and that's where the difference is between the ones that work and the ones that don't work. It's kind of like this, I forgot the doctor's name, but he made a video about dealing with parasites. You should take all of these drugs, including fenbendazole, uh, ivermectin, all of them, you know, like in, in, a, in a regimented dose, but like it, it hit them really hard, like really go at all the parasites because what happens is they... If you do a lower dose, they run away, they hide, and they drill through your intestinal lining. They get in your pancreas, uh, and then all of a sudden you have pancreatic cancer for no reason. But then there is that reason. So it, it it's there is a way of doing it right, and with alternative methods, uh, it's different because if you use drugs like fenbendazole, they are more effective, but then you have more risks. So. And I also can't recommend to people professionally because I'm not a medical doctor, the use of fenbendazole or things like ivermectin, but I can definitely teach people the biochemistry of it and like how that might come as an event in their own body. Um, but generally you have to cleanse right. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question about the cells, uh, and, or sorry, uh, fasting and the core benefits, my opinion is that uh, autophagy is the most important and then second is the stem cells uh, being reactivated. Uh, and also just the ability to discipline yourself as like a lifestyle technique. When you get into fasting, you start to become really proud of yourself. I've been really getting to this more in my practice of, because I developed a new, uh, it's not quite new. I've just been really quiet about it for a couple of years. That like there's this program that I run for people to shift their identities around to become more masculine as a man or more feminine as a woman. And there's a complex nature to the endocrine system involved in this and lifestyle patterns. So your own perspective as a man, you definitely need to respect yourself. It's not so much that you're getting respect from society, but it depends on the personality. Some people absolutely have to get respect from society to get respect for themselves. But generally that self-respect is super important. So fasting is crucial for that. And so when I work with people in just that plane, I'm still incorporating the fasting part because you need to develop self-discipline and self-discipline is super, super important. So if you can make yourself proud that you did that hard thing, really, really important for your overall health, just having that good perspective and mentality going in. 
You know, it's not just about diet. It's not just about exercise. It's usually all of the above. So that's, uh, those would be like the top three, um, in my perspective, uh, as far as benefits are concerned with fasting, as far as merits are concerned, what benefits I've gotten from it and what I've seen others get. So. No, that's brilliant. And, and that's something that people don't often, um, don't often talk about is is that um self-confidence and that sort of you know that comes from something like that some self-discipline and accomplishment I, rem I remember when i was running a gym in the late 90s i used to get the same thing from 20 rep squats because they're so horrific you know you do them so heavy so that you'd rather murder your own mother than do anything past eight but you carry on to the 20 and they're so effective but yeah. they were they're so nasty that that you get butterflies like two days out from the set thinking, oh, my God, I've got to go through that. But once you've gone through it, you put that thing back on the rack and collapse on the floor. You think, actually, most other things in life are really nowhere near that hard. And and, and it's cool. Same thing with dry fasting. And and it's funny with dry fasting. It's I, I don't know if there's something like my lymphatic system shouting at me, but. I always feel like pulling out the rebounder and doing a little bit of that. I mean, not much exercise, but there's something about rebounding and dry fasting for me. It's like just a little bit of that and it seems to get things moving. I don't know. But that's just, again, my intuition, nothing solid behind it. But this is this is interesting about the carnivore thing. Like I, I know Sophia pretty well and she's been on the podcast and I've, I've, I've known her for, for quite some time. And she's great, but she's real straight down the line. You know, it's all you need to do is eat fatty meat and whatever. And her, and she goes, no, you never need to fast. And she says that she sees really weird blood work when people are fasting. But I would kind of challenge that because I, I, I always like to sort of challenge things that anybody says and say that, well, maybe that's exactly what the body's supposed to look like, whatever it's doing when you're doing the fasting, right? It might look a bit weird compared to when she has them on just the PKD diet. But I mean, that is very effective without a doubt. But to be able to do the, the dry fasting as well, I think that combination of it is interesting. And you you um, you also mentioned that you were sort of doing some dry fasting and then alternating that with a bit of feasting. And this is interesting because at that conference, when I first met Sophia and uh, Jeremy Ayers was there and, and, and a few other people, and there was a guy called Bruce Duvet. And he's been holed up in a somewhere in Dublin for many years, fixing people's cancer. And he's been doing it on a, a three day fasting, one day feasting protocol. And it was really interesting. He decided he'd figured out about carnivore and he'd come along to this to sort of hang out and, and, and learn more about carnivore. Because he found out that, you know, whereas before he was even getting results with people eating whatever they wanted you know, on that on that feasting day. But the fasting and the feasting and going round and round like that was really, really of a, a lot of help. And he was he, he he said, can I show you some stuff on my laptop? And he was showing us these sort of case histories where he always takes photos of people's retinas before and after they've gone through this treatment. And, and it's supposed to be, you know, doctors will always say, well, it's impossible to get rid of macular degeneration or whatever. And even in people that didn't think there was anything wrong with their eyes, really, he can see all these new blood vessels growing into the retina, you know, after this cycle of feasting and uh, fasting and feasting. And it's, I, I think the combination of it, because as you said in another podcast, we, we hunted, <laughs> we weren't always successful. So it's got to be in our history. It's got to be a natural thing to do, isn't it? But with food available so much these days, I mean, when people go carnivore, and they have these problems, see this sort of, you know, the regular keto flu and adaptation problems and whatever. 
And also maybe the oxalate dumping. I mean, I've been there, I had kidney stones, I've had all kinds of crazy things. And what 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 do you think are the main things that go wrong with carnivore? Because, you know, I, I, I'm not somebody who thinks it's an absolute magic bullet for everything. It's incredibly useful and whatever, but we've got such a different past with all these things going on. What are some of the things that you are seeing failing in the carnivore diet, or at least people having trouble adapting to it in, in, in the early stages or even late stages? What are the main things you're seeing? I'd say uh, a lot of the challenges can be uh, based in like triglycerides, uh, like, and you know, they're not being oxidized well in the bloodstream. Uh, like someone's like not getting the right omega-3, omega-6 ratio. You know, a lot of people eat like entirely ruminant based and it's all conventional cattle. Um, and, you know, this might be higher in omega-6 and they're incorporating bacon too on a regular basis, more omega-6. Uh, and then they don't do any of the EPA and DHA. Like they don't do any fish or uh, they don't find a means of balancing those. Like that's one primary reason why people fail the carnivore diet. Um, I think people also have... Uh, laden problems like i had mentioned with parasites and fungus they can all make the diet really complicated if, if if you're the kind of person like for instance you can't like i have a lot of experience transitioning vegans and plant-based eaters to eating meat-based or entirely just meat and a lot of them when they go real long term you know not as not only is their ph different than a meat-based eaters uh, their microbiome is. And that's the biggest player there. Like a lot of vegans can't even like meat, but are even digested. Like some of them have gotten to the extent where the, you see the whole fat in their stool. Like they don't get any of it done. And so you can't just by some miracle start feeding a vegan a carnivore diet. You have to do the work. And so the primary reason why even hybridized dieters, when they go into like hybridized might be like an average American diet or an omnivorous diet, right? Um, or even paleo, you could call that too. Uh, but generally, uh, they may find it complicated too to go into carnivore. Some others, they'll do it very well and they're just good to go. Um, I work with clients who didn't have any digestive uh, dysfunction starting the diet. I did when I first started. Like the, the first go at it, I mean, I hadn't gone in like, five days. I was like, but I don't feel bad. So whatever. So I just kept doing it. And I eventually felt really, really good. I was like, okay, big deal. My body eventually figured it out. But some people are different than others in the sense of like, what I think is the microbiome. Um, I think people with some, a lot of people can have uh, you know, systemic to just gastrointestinal yeast dysbiosis. So uh, candida yeast would be the most common one. Uh, often seen as being pathogenic or, you know, pathogenic might be, uh, or would be uh, disease causing, or they're opportunistic is what I like to call it. I don't think of them as trying to kill you. Um, that's not, that's not, doesn't make any logical sense. They're trying to keep you alive, preserve you, but they want to evade the immune system while getting their extra cut. So what they do is when you feed a lot of sugar to your body, uh, they start to grow and grow and grow. And if you don't fast, you have no innate immune cells, innate immune cells uh, to get the job done and break them down and get rid of them. Uh, and so they just start to build up over time, over time, over time. The yeast says, as, uh, in, in particular, 
can mimic our tissue. So they trick the immune system all the time just like that. Um, but some other pathogens will actually go right into the nervous system um, and rewire all kinds of things from like, you know, our cravings to uh, messing with the immune system, et cetera, uh, and, and, and manipulating uh, host immune cells uh, and making them ineffective or just make it so they don't notice them. Um, there are all kinds of different pathways uh, in which they do this. Um, and it's really cool once you start to like really get into it. Uh, but generally, uh, it's really important that people focus in on what microbes they have. Because if you had like taken a lot of antibiotics in the past, and I've seen a lot of carnivore doctors still at their practice, just dishing out the antibiotics because that's all they know to do. And I'm big on dry fasting for bacterial infections. I, this is like the, the top two of like what dry fasting does. Like dry fasting deals with chronic inflammation almost immediately and bacterial infections. This is my experience. I can't medically make any statements about that. And I can't, you know, you have to ask your doctor, et cetera, et cetera. All that disclaimer stuff, enjoy it. <laughs> but you, when you dry fast with bacterial infections, like in my experience, uh, I had bacterial meningitis. I just lay down, did nothing. My, my, you know, my body was pretty much paralyzed in a whole section of it. Couldn't really move. And so I was like, yeah, well, I had the utmost space for some reason. I wasn't afraid at all. I just knew the dry fast would take care of it. I'd never seen any literature on it. I'd never seen anything that could verify it, but I just had my theories around the stem cell research and innate immune cells. So I was like, well, technically I should survive this if my immune system is in an, a really uh, hyperactive state during a fast. And there is literature proving this, even with intermittent fasting, that uh, the immune system is way more active during a fasted period. So uh, that kind of concretely in a way just told me psychologically that I'd make it through it because otherwise, yeah, I guess I would be doomed, <laughs> but I was not taking any of So anyway, I dry fasted by day three and a half. I was, uh, it was completely gone. Uh, but I kept it going. I went to like uh, six and a half days of that dry fast by day on day five. I was like, so limber and like ready to just go exercise I went and climbed a tree uh and so that's what like is the difference like right now like today i woke up for day three and i'm like feeling absolutely miserable but then i'm realizing well you know i've been through these fasts before there's always a period of feeling absolutely miserable and then eventually your body starts to get rid of the toxins and you're right back at it again you know and you're always going to have the energy and the water on some level if you're efficiently breaking down fats and making endogenous water sources or um, making more energy. So generally, like, I don't have a fear around dry fasting, at least for me, because my body's more efficient at breaking down fats. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm branching off too much here, but I know that the, the microbiome is the most important uh, to make a carnivore diet efficient. Like a really great example is Maggie White. You've heard of her, right? I feel like most carnivores have, uh, she's, you know, that one has been 65 years uh, eating carnivore on her ranch out in Canada. Uh, she's 82 and she looks gorgeous. Uh, she's literally looks half her age. Like some people exaggerate that I'm absolutely not exaggerating. And, and she's a real hard worker. She just, all she does is take care of that ranch all day. It seems like, right. And 
this is what she's yeah, I remember, doing. I remember Anthony recently, I heard him say about when he was visiting her and, you know, Anthony Chafee, and, and he said that he saw her sort of leap over a fence and wrestle some massive bull back into some paddock or something. And she's like 82. He's rolling out of bed half nine in the morning. She's up at five. She's already done half a day's work before he gets out. Amazing. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. That's, there's some Canadians out there, man. I just got flown out to a ranch in Canada. It was kind of like a fan of my stuff. And he's a really cool guy. And he's, he's doing 20 hour days. Like no problem. Like what the heck dude? And is it Canadians or just that particular area in Canada? <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so I was, that's really impressive to me. Like she's definitely top three, if not the number one, like most healthy person that exists today. If she's, performing at that level in my experience of what i've observed over time uh and the way that she looks the way she lives her life but there, i like to explain to people why hers works and others don't like the the people that i've worked with in the past who grew up on a farm these people are even if they took antibiotics it's so much easier for them to swing back with gastrointestinal health than anyone else and I started to, that started to make me realize and research more and find stuff on various journals. At this point, I was using uh, friends' keys to like get into uh, scientific journals I couldn't afford to pay for. And, and so I would, uh, I found some research on how, on prenatal health and, and my, the microbiome, like your, when you, when you do a C-section, you, 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 you and, and, and especially nosocomial, like, in like in an, uh, a hospital setting, uh, the microbiome that starts with that, that baby, like their starting microbiome is so much drastically different than if they did no C-section. And now if you took them out of the nosocomial space and you did like a, a birth out in the woods, it, it's, it's a huge difference. And that time period and from then on until they're like 10 years old is like this gigantic uh, formation of like microbes in their intestines as they're aging. And it's super incredibly important for their long-term health. Like to the point that like guys like you and me, I have to spend several years fixing those problems. And so people like that have such a great advantage with life. I'm not to say that Maggie White grew up in that exact setting, but what she's doing now is living in a wild environment doing hard work and getting all those dirty, like those microbes from dirt, animals, et cetera, while eating a diet that suppresses any worms that might come after her or any kind of fungus, which they couldn't really because of her diet. Ultimately, it's just like, it's, it's crazy to me. Uh, you know, kind of, cause I, I've always had these theories about all of it and like seeing a Maggie White's like this perfect, like example of like, yes, I was right. It's true. Like the, it's all about the microbes really at the, at the end of the day. And I know a lot of medical doctors in the carnivore space aren't super hung up on that. They're usually focused on plant toxins and full elimination and the nutritional sufficiency of the diet, et cetera. But I am super big on how it affects the microbiome, you know, because there are certain genera of bacteria that are necessary for our health that love me and they reside in the small intestine. So you probably heard some guy, some gut health coach who's like, well, it's all about the colon and the distal gut. This is where all the microbes are and you need to feed them prebiotics. Meat is a prebiotic. Like 
you could feed them meat in your small intestine and, and those microbes are going to proliferate. Problem is with vegans, problem is with people who don't do carnivore well, as that intestinal dysbiosis of your duodenum, your jejunum, your ileum, these three sections of your small intestine, this can cause you to have more fungus take over that environment or say parasites. And it makes it so much more challenging for you to absorb the, the meat-based foods. So that's why I'm big on dry fasting in the sense that like, it not only gets rid of the pathogens, but it has the ability to restore your tissue. So like if you're a celiac person and your microvilli are all flattened out and you can't absorb nutrition because the microvilli help you absorb the nutrition in the bloodstream, um, dry fasting in theory could regenerate them. I absolutely believe that. I, I will take that to my grave. I have no literature on that, but I know it works. I know it would work. Um, because I've seen people get to these functional results through cyclically dry fasting and eventually regenerating their entire system. Dry fasting is giving your body the ability to repair everything. Like there's some amazing things out there. There's like a paraplegic guy. Uh, no, he was actually quadriplegic and he fell off a horse and all that. And he didn't even know it was the fasting. Like he told me that because he was fat, being stuck in a bed for four years because of the, you know, full body paralysis. He, he, uh, uh, he drive, he, no, he didn't drive fast, but he, he water fasted 187 days. And what came out of that was him able to walk again. And I was like, okay, well, that was the fasting brother. <laughs> Maybe he just had a pinched nerve at the end of the day, but fasting will fix that too. You know, fasting can, theoretically fix anything now i venture to say that like there's only you can only take it so far you have to have the sufficiency you gotta be smart about it like eating organs for said organ that you're looking to fix and giving the right nutrients for that organ or eating meat based so that pathogens aren't you know benefiting the whole time and creating more disease like it all all this applies having a mineral balance uh, working so all of your systems are working um this is all imperative for fasting to work really well and doing all the lifestyle things I mentioned. So there's a lot of factors that play into it. I think that I don't know that someone would be able to regrow a hand or something. Uh, but, oh, wow. Well, uh, Phil, I mean, yeah, if you... thing, I've, I've, I've never managed to regrow that. However much steak I eat, it's not happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. But, you know, theoretically, I mean, I wonder how long if you were to dry fast and then say eat me afterwards and it possibly could. I don't know. But I think your body would see it as something that matters more than internal systems. Yeah. So I, I at this point, I'm at least 95 percent certain that that fasting, no matter if it's dry or not, your body is trying to adjust to its current environment. So you know, I think that's brilliant. And, and you know, you, you make such a good point about all these cesareans. They're always trying to con people into them so the guy can get home for his dinner, you know, and he, he knows what time the baby's coming out. And we got conned into it both times, uh, not with my 33 year old, but with 15 year old daughter and eight year old son who I've got here. And um, we got conned into it twice. And I wish I hadn't because, you know, it, it, there's they're not getting seeded with that that um you know that initial bacteria down the down the birth canal they're not and particularly was certainly not out in the woods and 
it was interesting with my son because he's he he actually I, I knew more about it these days. I mean, my first son, I brought up veggie and a lot of problems. Um, my daughter kind of brought up on a normal sort of crap diet and then went more into carnivore. She's OK. She's fine. But my son, who's eight, you know, he had issues early on. He had a load of eczema and uh, stuff like that, even though all he had was breast milk and meat. And it took a while. It's fixed it now. But it, it took a while. And it, he was he was so sensitive at one point, even if he ate like a quarter of a peeled apple, his face would start weeping. You know, he was totally intolerant to carbohydrates. And now he's incredible. I mean, his physiology is like a little bodybuilder. He's amazing. And he's emotionally and physically really strong. And they're just so funny and really intelligent. Amazing uh, uh, among the kids at his school, you know, who are all sort of got a layer of fat and they're all full of cereals and whatever and that kind of thing. Always getting sick. And he's not. But it, it took a while to to get to get that sorted. And I think that problem wouldn't have happened if he had had a natural birth. But they conned us into it, you know, um, saying it was necessary. And it probably never was. And you say also interesting about the microbiome. I mean, I don't think anybody on the planet understands everything that's going on in that right but um and then people have done these funny studies on the hadza where everybody got um obsessed didn't they about the microbiome and they all want to go and have fecal transplants from the hadza and really missing the point and saying it's oh they've got a great microbiome because they eat all this fiber and all of that sort of thing and actually they don't you know if you see the people i had mary ruddick on my podcast and you hear other people who've gone to stay with them and quite often they just chew it and spit most of the fiber out but it, it, it's more that they're out there, isn't it, with their hands in the dirt and they're not washing their hands and they're drinking the sort of water that would really upset any Westerner, but keeps them sorted with that diverse microbiome. And who knows what sort of microbiome we're supposed to have. Um, it, it varies for so many things. But I love this idea of, of the dry fasting and how much it can fix. I mean, I've read some of the, the sort of Russian research on it and um and also, uh, you know, listen to all of uh, August Dunning's stuff and whatever on his Phoenix Protocol uh, uh, YouTube channel and book. But there seems to be this sort of magical point of 11 days that everybody seems to go for, for sort of blowing up pancreatic cancer or something, you know, in the seven days every now and again for the longevity. But just for turning things over and keeping healthy, those shorter dry fasts of about three days, you were saying that you make sure you do like a, a three day one every month. I think this is fantastic. I mean, something I wanted to ask you about, what would be your uh, uh, sort of solution for somebody with um, something really degenerative like late stage MS and whatever? Because I find that those people, because it's not necessarily painful, that I get people coming to me with arthritis. They're very motivated because it fucking hurts, you know, but with, with MS, there seems to be also a different mindset, which might be why it's gone into MS and not into the joints, different emotional makeup, different traumas, all sorts. But what would you do with that? Because, you know, I, as far as I can see from what most people say, so fear of paleomedicine and whatever, you know, if you've got something in the guts quicker to heal, then things like the joints. But then when it gets into the into the uh, sort of dural sheaths of the, of the nerves and whatever, not much blood supply. It can be a lot slower to heal. What would be your your approach with somebody who was sort of, you know, pretty much wheelchair bound or even bed bound with with late stage MS or something like that? I'd like to find the root of it. So there are various pathogens I think are uh, suspect in the whole paradigm. I don't think it's inherent in uh, much other things. I think it's typical um, uh, 
for pathogens to become opportunistic in the areas that people have MS. Uh, so that's typically how I operate with like my brain is I'm thinking about the pathways certain microbes go to and like to be in and what they like to manipulate. And there are only like certain genera and species of microbes uh, can only colonize certain areas like molds would be in the esophagus or the lungs or, you know, through your surface tissue being your lymphatic system and your bloodstream, right? So say, for instance, someone has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, can very much be a mold and it could also very much be a parasite. Parasites love the bloodstream. So generally that perspective is what I bring to others. Um, and so I, I help them to look to the root so they could go and get their own uh, mycotoxin test and to see what they have circulating in their bloodstream as far as mycotoxins are concerned. Uh, this would be probably the first one I would look to with MS. Um, second, I would look to uh, doing like an OAT, which is an organic acid test for understanding what kind of yeast metabolites someone has in their bloodstream. This can point to another direction of a possible cause. Um, but if you, even if you were to find mold or yeast, the way to break them down and win ultimately is very similar. The thing with mold though, is it's aerobic, um, in nature. So it can only colonize certain areas of the body, uh, but it is more prolific in these areas than a yeast. Uh, so it's very hard to get rid of them. So you can't just like hope that when you send in some antifungal into your gastrointestinal tract, it's going to get up into your bloodstream and actually break down the whole issue. So this is typically, well, what I like to do is still stabilize the gastrointestinal tract, get the microbiome in there working. Um, hope that the immune system uh, finds some use with other uh, means of, say for instance, you, like uh, most of the people I work with, I don't send them on carb. Like that's very few people. Um, most people, I get them on a low carbohydrate diet that's low oxalate. Um, typically cruciferous vegetables, alliums, these are lower in oxalate. You know, just have to be worrisome. Like if they have FODMAT sensitivity or goitrogens, uh, you have to have iodine in their diet, et cetera. Um, but generally, uh, they might take like, uh, oregano oil, or they might take uh, raw coconut oil, or they might take uh, grapefruit seed extract. Um, grapefruit seed extract, I would say is probably the most potent for like candida yeast. Um, it can also destroy mold. Um, and I, based on the literature, I believe grapefruit seed extract is actually more bioavailable and, uh, capable of getting to other areas of the body than others than like the oregano oil. Um, but there's not a lot that I've seen that really makes that like a very clear statement. Like if you have systemic mold and you're actually seeing people ameliorate it with said extract. Um, what I tend to do is operate with the gut, you know, that's creates a foundation and then work upward. So, and when you're working upward, you're trying to coach someone into leaving an environment that caused the mold. Number one, the most important thing is getting away from it. Okay. Just stop feeding it. Stop, stop, uh, letting it get into your skin every day of your life. Like that's, what's killing you. Um, cause I've worked with people for years who have been going from place to place to place and places that have mold. And now they're living in this constant state of paranoia. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, that at that point, so you start to get crazy. You're like, oh my gosh, cause 
it, it gets into your clothes, gets into your furniture. And then you have to get to this point of like, okay, well, does the ammonia work to clean these 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 surfaces or like my clothes? It doesn't always do that. So it's complicated because even if it cleared out 80% of the mycotoxins, uh, that person who is now very much mold sensitive, its immune system freaks out anytime it sees a mycotoxin, uh, they're going to be debilitated just with like a small interaction with spores. So it makes it a really, really complicated paradigm. So typically I end up working with people who are really like sometimes bedridden and it's so much harder to deal with that. And so when I look at MS, I'm like, that's a similar example. Um, and so you need to change the environment no matter what. So being in a nosocomial setting, if you're bedridden in a hospital, you're kind of making your situation worse. Uh, maybe that hospital has no mold in it. But that hospital also has almost no bacteria. That's what's so dangerous about a nosocomial environment. Like you need to be around bacteria. Bacteria are saving grace. So those are the guys that I send into the gastrointestinal tract that I know get into the bloodstream or could get into the bloodstream. So bacteria are probiotics and in a lot of ways help the immune system to go after pathogens that uh, are over the body um for instance i've taken um my mother she took a probiotic that uh, i typically use with clients uh she was trying to go over after like a yeast issue and it started to ameliorate the problem um though at one point when she took them uh, she ended up getting um uh, inflammation in her aortic valve and this is a dangerous situation because if the inflammation persists you have to go to the hospital and get it all dealt with and the chances of survival have a certain percentage. Um, and I forget the percentage. But uh, I just told her, like, real commonly, I'm like, Mom, I'm absolutely certain that if you fast this right now, it's going to go down. And so it was weird to me because, like, my mom's always been, like, focused on being the caretaker and, like, being the one who heals everyone. And for her to listen to me like that was like, wow. <laughs> but she did. Uh, she, she dry fasted for 48 hours and the inflammation went down. But the point is, is it's not the probiotics causing the problem. It's the probiotics uh, getting rid of problems. And a great way to get rid of problems is inflammation. Uh, macrophages, like the type 1 macrophages, they'll just go in, shell a bomb, inflammation storm. And then you got type 2 macrophages that are supposed to go in to clear it all up, right? I think that Dr. Gem uh, Dr. Tenpenny was talking about how uh, the whole COVID vaccine thing was... Uh, causing people to lose functionality with the type two macrophages. So people would have chronic inflammation without it being dealt with. Um, te technically though, like if you were to dry fast and regenerate that innate immune system, you'd probably be able to get them back in action again. Um, light, light information that people can maybe apply, but that's theoretical. Um, but yeah, so uh, that when it comes to MS diet is super important for suppressing pathogens but really rely on your environment and then also, um, you know, work upward with uh, breaking down the systemic infections. You can do this with like iodine. A lot of people like to screw around with the mega doses. I've done that, but I would say that if you do the really high doses, like say Lugol's 2% is like a normal dose. I was doing, 
I think it was like the one you buy on this website. I think it was about 47% or something. I'll take multiple drops of that because I'm like, oh, screw it. Whatever. I'll see what happens. And I'm just like that. And it really cleared my bloodstream. I felt it. Like I felt like a, a warmth go through my, my blood. And I felt like things were done. But I, it did create a, a mineral imbalance for me. So I will say that you need to be careful about overdosing on the iodine. Uh, you got to have the selenium. You got to have the sodium. And you got to have the right diet doing it. I'm not going to say don't do the overdosing. But I would say that like you got to be really careful when you do it. It's kind of like the liver gallbladder flushes. You got to be responsible about it, right? So that's one good way uh, to handle bloodstream infections is having iodine sufficiency. Carnivores need to take eating fish seriously. I, I think it's super important. Like wild uh, Atlantic fish, um, you know, because the Pacific's full of more mercury. Bigger fish have a ton of methylmercury. Um, but they have methylmercury tested tuna out there that you can find. That's really great. Um, even then, they'll have like a real microscopic amount. There's honestly in our society today, there's no getting away from it. If you believe in chemtrails, you probably definitely get it every day of your life. <laughs> but um, but I also believe in like the idea of just staying in a, a state where you're constantly healing yourself. So anyway, ground acids diet, cleansing the bloodstream with iodine would be good. Um, but also too, uh, what was another one? I, I know having a uh, vitamin C sufficiency really helps. I know carnivores might be averse to like an acerola cherry vitamin C mixture. Um, but they can also just eat raw liver. Here's the thing with liver. If you cook liver, vitamin C is water soluble. So are all of its B vitamins. So you stand to lose a good portion of that nutrition from the cooked pate liver. So I recommend people just freeze the liver, let it thaw a little bit. Depends on how you like the texture. They can even cut it into pills so they never have to taste it. Close your sinuses, swallow. Easy. Um, and if you're a carnivore, if there's even a small shred of chance there's a parasite in it, your stomach acid should kill it. Um, you know, and if not, the small intestine and all the bacteria in there. It just depends on the person. Okay? So I, I'm really big on raw liver for all those things for vitamin C sufficiency. Um, so like if you eat too much glucose in your diet, it's going to compete with vitamin C. Uh, so it's really important. Uh, that's why like, you, know, you also get a little bit in, in, in the blood uh, of an animal, but it's really hard to find that substance without it being di like totally saturated in citric acid. Um, I know I'm saying citric acid, you know, people think that as vitamin C, but like most of it on the markets from like this mold, um, it's meant to preserve foods. It's really toxic. Um, Anyway, so that's my opinion on MS. Deal with environment first. Diet. Uh, even if they're bedridden, you know, diet, environment, whatever they could possibly afford and do, get the support, ask for help. A lot of people have a hard time asking for help. Sorry about all the, the noises. Um, but then, yeah, and then uh, iodine, uh, vitamin C can help. Uh, even if you're to take like acerola cherry, like it definitely helps with bloodstream infections. Uh, but dry fasting. Dry fasting is the ultimate healer of, of all things, all things, uh, bloodstream related system related. That's why I love dry fasting. It's just the, just the fix. Yeah. It's a business, isn't it? Now, um, it's funny you read my mind because my next question was going to be about iodine because 
There's very few supplements that I'm particularly into. And, and also you mentioning about fish. I think this is very, um, very, uh, um, very much ignored in, in the carnivore space, particularly with people who have um, sort of neurological issues. And I think, you know, Jack Cruz would be proud of you there. My my friend Jack, who um, is always going on about the best, the the worst fish is better than the best meat, you know, the, the, it's better than the best meat or whatever, you know, the worst. Fish. He loves it, you know, all the seafood stuff. But iodine's real interesting. I mean, I, I didn't even know about it back in when my mum got breast cancer. She was like 92 at the time. And uh, I put her on a carnivore diet, tried a load of things, put her on a load of... Um, uh, uh cannabis oil and whatever and she just got it was, she was too stoned you know i gave her the proper stuff not the crap you get in the shops and and um and then i thought well that's not working so let's try some iodine and i've got a youtube video up there of her tumor just disappearing it was great to um to prove to the oncologist that i wasn't just a, a lunatic and then it did work it was the first it, i've told this story many times but it was the first um natural reversal they'd seen of, of of cancer and i said that's the first one and you're an oncologist and i've seen quite a few and i'm a drummer <laughs> i enjoyed that but yeah the, the 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 iodine thing because i i'm very interested in this because my missus you know she's from tanzania she grew up in arusha where they have a hell of a lot of fluoride in the water they've got so much in there that she's got fluorosis you can see it in the teeth so many people in arusha have and then 20 years um vegetarian and then graves disease and i'm like yeah you can see the progression of that and we we were so worried about about the iodine even though in the old merck manuals you know iodine is a cure for um thyroid storm but nowadays the endocrinologists freak you out if you've got graves disease and you take any iodine it's going to kill you and all they want to do is give you radioactive iodine to blow your thyroid up hello i mean it's very weird the sort of nonsense they go on about but we took a while to get uh, to get confident with that. We did try the mega dosing. Um, my friend Carno Pine has a, a sort of a Facebook group to do with that. And he's well into the mega dosing. But yeah, I think you have to be careful. But we just thought in the end, fuck it, you know, went for it. And within about a week, her thyroid levels were were, were back into the normal range. And um, uh, she's she's kind of got off it and couldn't keep the carnivore up and ended up on low dose naltrexone to kind of squash it down and eat some crap but she's back on it now and I, i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out the the sort of iodine thing because that it is one of those supplements that does seem to be uh kind of useful sometimes you know we we all have i think we all went into carnivore with a, a cupboard full of supplements and most of them ended up in the bin because you didn't really need most of them anymore but the iodine thing is is particularly useful. What would you say then about you know people who um, Graves is a little is a little more rare, but I mean pretty much everybody seems to have Hashimoto's these days. You know every every woman who's who's been on some kind of restricted diet or a vegan diet or something, everyone seems to have Hashimoto's, and that seems to be a little bit easier to deal with. But the hyperthyroidism. Where, where, what would you say that uh, that iodine is an important thing in that, or, or you know, you've got to go in with a borax or something and blow all the halides out of the thyroid and and get, uh, you know, also there's an oxalate component probably as well in there, and God knows what lodges in the thyroid. But what would you say is important for the thyroid there, even preparing for an iodine thing or going straight in with an iodine or diet or what? What would you say for that? Ah. Uh. 
the thyroid is really complicated. I think it's a system issue more than an organ issue, right? It's a downstream effect. You, you got all the organs in the brain that affect the thyroid. There's various axes that go through the thyroid. Uh, and so when you work from the gut, it ends up going up to those organs in the brain and then that goes down to the thyroid. So another thing too, is you have to keep in mind, a lot of people are a lot more systemically infected than we think in society. Um, I think infections can reside in the area, if not completely populate the tissue there. Um, and that can be one component. Uh, and one way to help the thyroid in that situation would be iodine sufficiency. Um, I do see the credence of the, of the larger doses uh, because in a, as our society today, we don't, we don't get enough iodine through daily consumption of food. Uh, you know, I believe, you know, looking at the historical uh, records of, of people, um, if you bring it all the way back, I imagine the first person was on the coast. And I, I imagine that people were more beach dwellers before they were out killing woolly mammoths, um, you know, because the way that we are, the way that we're built, um, it stands to reason there was like a starting place and warmth um, and the best place would have been at a beach um, and having the access to a lot of fish. Uh, I think iodine has been very much in our diets forever. And there's just so much less of it in society now. It's like magnesium. Our soil isn't as rich anymore. It's not full of magnesium. Uh, ruminants don't get it, then we don't get it. And so now we're supplementing it. It's the same with iodine. I think people just on one end aren't eating enough fish, but on number two, like a lot of fish just don't have enough of it. Uh, so, in, and there's like also other other uh, nutrients that like astaxanthin that's really great in some um, some uh, darker colored fish, and it it's just fish are just super great. Uh, and, you know, you get a lot of nutritional sufficiency there, a lot of uh, interesting uh, minerals that you may not get as much of with ruminants. And that's one concern with a lot of carnivore diet uh, dieters is they often get mineral imbalanced, um, and because they're, you know, they feel so great in their diet, they think it's okay to keep just doing McDonald's patties, and that's it. You know, it, it's yes, you're gonna have great remission just eating McDonald's patties, but you're gonna become imbalanced. Uh, you're gonna have nutrients that you're missing. Um, so I think that the the most important thing for the thyroid is just to have some level of sufficiency and it can be good to catch up with the, the larger doses. You just have to be responsible with it. Um, even in cases of, you know, you were, you were saying, um, hyper and hypothyroidism. Um, I know obviously hypothyroidism is a lot more common. Uh, and this people he, tell me this all the time with fasting, like, Oh my God, I'm, you know, I'm having hypothyroidism. I'm like, well, no, you're, you're, you know, what, what's happening is, you know, especially if you're dry fasting, like dry fasting will stall, like dehydration on its own will, you know, stall a uh, circulatory production, like kind of like uh, condense things to the point that like, if you were to do like a glucose monitor and you're like seeing um, like or, or blood sugar, like you're reading your blood sugar and, uh, and it sees that it, it reads it as really high despite being fasted for like three days. Well, dehydration can create like a false read, uh, and to like, um, uh, cholesterol, uh, not, not cholesterol, um, cortisol, uh, can end up creating uh, more glucose supply. Um, and 
just generally like, you know, not getting enough circulation can happen with a fast um, and like getting heat to your extremities and all that. So uh, this can be all within the space of like uh, hyperthyroidism, like where you have, uh, for instance, like you're getting that real like, oh, I'm dying. Like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. Like, or they say they have POTS, right? That's another common one. Um, and this is just all like a natural feature. It's kind of like uh, keto flu a little bit where, you know, you have that adjustment period. You're, you know, you're adapting to fat, uh, fat burning. And then after so long through the fast or through the keto diet, you're like, well, I'm feeling really good and I'm back at it again. I don't have that hypothyroidism that I was freaking out about. Um, but that's hypothyroidism, right? Um, and because of hyperthyroidism, uh, I think like when I think about that, I just think about sufficiency and I think about, um, I think about fasting to uh, balance out the issue. Um, even though like people might be really afraid to fast while they're like that, I still believe the body regulates in that situation. I don't think it's going to lead you to die. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, most people end up recovering um, in that example, but I've not really had an opportunity to work with a lot of people who have a uh, hyper. Um, it, it's not common, um, but generally like with the literature I've read, um, and I don't have it as an experience either. So I can't give the best advice on it, but I would say that like what I've read, um, I would have faith, uh, and considering fasting for it. So as long as you're sufficient so that it can break down the reason why it's happening. Like at some point, um, the body will just start to rectify itself. Um, and, and you know, even there are so many crazy conditions, like the Russians are achieving, like, uh, you know, the Filinov guy. You know, he's treating any kind of chronic disease with dry fasting, just monitoring people, you know, like I have absolute faith in it. Like as long as you're being smart and being efficient, like sufficient um, and getting things like iodine, getting selenium, getting sodium, getting potassium. Um, these are ubiquitous in a carnivore diet, but not if you're doing no fish. Uh, if you're doing no fish, then you can end up screwing up like the, the selenium side of things, maybe molybdenum and, and magnums. Um just all just depends. So uh, on someone's choices with their carnivore diet, and I think they should be smarter about it. And I think that while people are talking crud about organs, I think organs are incredibly important. Um, another thing we can get into is vitamin A toxicity. I love that topic. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd love to get into that. This I'm going to have to get you back for another part. But there's just one more thing I'd like to like to ask you about yeah. on this part, and that is, you know, it's so much. Um, Oh God, there was two things. There was the distilled water and the and the raw milk and uh, leave the distilled water for the moment. Just quickly, good or bad? When I took a load of distilled water, it was back when I was eating kind of vegan. And so I thought I found that ridiculous website, Aquarius, the water bearer. And I thought, right, I've got to have a load of um, distilled water and I've got to have a big distiller. And so I was drinking like a gallon of it a day and I ended up not having any sense of taste or smell as all the zinc had gone out of my body. And I think that was probably because my diet was also insufficient. But uh, so I think people who drink distilled water on a carnivore diet, probably not so many problems. And where are you on water and distilled water and stuff? Damn, I got to these yeah. two questions to get in. So distilled water, I think, is really good for you. I just wouldn't do it um, with water fasting because, you know, it, it's it's like, uh, if I'm correct, it's it's vaporized water. And so you're getting like the most pure form of water. 
but that water also might be mineral insufficient. And so it's going to pull in minerals. So uh, that's the primary uh, fallacy with water fasting and extending it is that no matter what water you're using, it's a solvent and it's taking minerals with it. Distilled water is like magnifying that. So I would do distilled water for every other situation, not even every other situation. I'd prefer spring source over anything. I would even drink this streams that have Giardia in it. I'm not worried about it. You would definitely want to be worried about it. Other people would worry about it. It depends on like, it depends on like how confident you are in your immune system. But ultimately, spring source is the best. Uh, you know, distilled would be next after that. I think uh, it just depends. Uh, but I think that the mineral homeostasis gets screwed up. So yeah. Well, there's nothing like a bit of spring water for washing down some deer shit, eh? <laughs> that's funny yeah i heard about yeah. that that's yeah. so, what what i wanted to get into was um uh just to, just to to close up milk dairy stuff like that i mean paleo medicine are really against it you know when we conferred with sophia about about debtors uh graves disease it was like right give up all dairy even a few molecules can keep it going absolutely horrendous and all of that and um and and I gave it up with her. And, you know, the, my first four years carnivore, I was like pretty much, you know, meat, fish, butter. And I gave up the butter. And then suddenly all my sinus issues cleared up and, and my abs popped out again. I, it wasn't giving me any joint issues, but it was a big step up. And I've rethought it a lot since then. You know, all these people that are just the, like the steak and butter gang and all of that kind of thing. I'm wondering whether that's really optimal. Um, and... Now, so we were, Sophia was over for a, a conference earlier this year and Ben, who I do the big fat challenge with and whatever. And uh, we went to this conference and, and Sophia was, you know, hit us with this thing like um, raw milk is even worse than pasteurized milk. And so we did a little video with her while we were out for this walk. And then I had her on the podcast and whatever. And people get so upset about this because it's a real, it's a real sacred cow for them, isn't it? Uh, the raw milk is the way to heal and all of that kind of thing. But I think ancestrally, it's probably you know, uh, uh, not not that necessary. But but you know the 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 raw milk. Um, you 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 were saying earlier on that um, that you know. Oh no no that was that was that was earlier on today. Something else I was thinking of. But the um, the the raw milk. She's saying, you know, it doesn't. It the the pasteurized milk will have some of the you know the lactase destroyed or whatever. So people can't digest the lactose they'll have an initial reaction to it because it's all unbalanced but the raw milk has more of the uh growth factors um intact in it so this will cause unusual cell replication down the line and maybe lead to cancer even though initially they won't have the digestive issues or whatever when they're taking it so do you think there's any place for for dairy in the human diet or you know where's your view on that um, I'm real mineral, middle of the road about it. I'll use it for some people and others not, but I'll also say it's not natural for someone after the age of six to consume it. And I, like we're supposed to lose the lactase enzyme supposed to be gone, but we perpetually consume it. If you look at our blueprint model for out in the wild, I mean, if you're out hunting, you know, before all of the agriculture and before all of the livestock farming, you just had hunting pretty much and some foraging. And there is no like consuming dairy as an adult. It was just mother's breast milk. So I don't think of it as a natural model, but I can think of it as therapeutic for specific people. 
Like there are people that I've worked with who've done the carnivore diet who have extremely bad situations like with their liver. Um, and, and they're having a situation with gaining weight. I, you know, like that's one big problem with carnivore if you're eating lion and it's hard to like gain mass and fat. Uh, and so these might, this guy might be an example or gal um, to help them gain extra weight really fast because of, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, growth hormones involved. Uh, but the calf is supposed to have the androgens that are in that raw milk, the estrogens uh, to uh, enable their growth and to excel. Uh, it's very much natural for the calf. And when people consume it, it's almost like HRT, hormone replacement therapy. So if you're working with someone who's past the age of 45, who struggles as a man to get testosterone, his reads like 300, you could dose him with raw milk and probably go up. But, you know, he, he would, on the flip side, have the estrogens to deal with and become interestingly perverse or something. It just depends. Uh, I've. I, I, there are a lot of programs that I've run in the past that I don't do publicly that I've had to remove raw milk from people's diets or pasteurize milk from their diets to alter their whole uh, paradigm and around thoughts for people and relationships. Um, I know that raw milk leads people to, it's basically you are what you eat. It makes you like child brained a little bit sometimes. Um, I've seen a lot of people in the raw milk community they're getting great benefits from consuming it because it's full of B vitamins. It's got all kinds of nutrients across the board because it's meant to be that way for the calf to grow. Um, but it also makes people incredibly immature a lot of the time and, or are really aggressive. Like if I was debating a carnivore who's consuming cheese, pasteurized dairy or raw milk, and they're at a point where they're disagreeing with me and they're starting to get frustrated they tend to like get real emotional a lot quicker than the person who's like on the zero carb Zen spectrum of just eating meat. This is my experience. I do a lot of debate. So, and I also know it from my experience, I get more frustrated and more can like willing to contend others when I'm consuming dairy raw or not raw milk is better. It's more bioavailable. I have less um, digestion issues. If I consume it, um, it helps me to gain weight for long fasting periods. So it just really depends because like for me, I'm an ectomorph, me on a carnivore diet, just meat, really, really hard for me to gain weight. Um, and so sometimes I'll use the raw milk, but I have to understand though that like raw milk causes me other issues. I don't think of it as natural. I just accept the negatives for what it is. Um, it's less inflammatory for me, but it's full of hormones. So I just get jacked like, whoa, you know, I'm feeling like, whoa, you know. But then also it's got the estrogen. So I'm kind of getting overly emotional sometimes. And it's just kind of, it just messes with you. The rock, the raw milk community, like they, they do not like it when I say stuff like that about the hormones. I'm like the literature is right there. You get E1, E2, E3, E4, all in the raw milk, bioavailable, ready to go. It's going to hit your cells. Um, so that is one reality um, is that there are benefits with the HRT. There are negatives. Um, there is a way of gaining weight, et cetera. And as your, um, the, the lady you mentioned was mentioning, I think you said, Sarah, um, I hadn't heard about it being connected to cancer, but I could possibly believe that. Uh, I know that certain pathogens have a strong preference for dairy. So that's another thing to be aware of is the microbiome you're creating 
uh, surrounding that dairy consumption. So you're creating a childlike microbiome. I mean, what we don't, we have, we know like 0.01% of the field of uh, my, the microgender. So that's basically microbes that specifically deal with your endocrine system, your hormones. So you could be cultivating a microbiome that makes you a little more effeminate as a guy or, uh, or like uh, really masculine as a woman. Uh, and, you know, I'm really interested in this space because I had to do that for myself to masculinize myself as a whole other story. But generally, like, be careful with dairy in that sense. Don't take it too far. Um, it's like a cleanse. Like, don't just keep doing it like temporary, you know, use it for the scenarios where you need to do it. But don't make it like and, 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 and quantity matters. Right. So people who do eight ounces of dairy, raw milk a day are nowhere the same as the people who are doing over 20 ounces. If you do over 20 ounces, you end up in that, that spectrum of where you're not only addicted, but you're starting to create too much calcium in the body. It's going to make you anemic. Um, there's a lot of bile and available calcium, regardless if it's, a, if it's pasteurized dairy or not. So really important to understand and discern that is like, if you're a carnivore and you're still anemic, probably need to worry about the dairy a little bit you should also think about your microbes because the microbes play a big thing in that also when you cook your meat uh it creates non-heme iron and that's less bioavailable than heme iron which you would get from like a rare steak so anyway that that's the the whole thing with raw dairy um and if you're doing raw milk that's sugar so that's just overrides the whole carnivore diet you're just already not carnivore anymore like even though it's Dairy is technically carnivore. Raw milk almost makes it not carnivore because the whole point of carnivore is glucose suppression. So, but if you're eating a zero carb, you know, cheese or um, a butter, um, I think cheese is problematic with molds if you have mold uh, problems. Uh, so, that might be why people who eat cheese, even though it says zero carb, they have problems. It's probably related to mold in their bodies. It just depends. It can also be yeast. Uh, and parasites, like they, across the board, they find a way to eat it. But butter, I would say is probably a lot safer um, if you incorporate that into your diet. Um, it's just that you start to create a problem if you're doing the whole stick of butter a day kind of person to get your fats in. I don't think that's a good quantity. Um, but it can be if you're dealing with like, if it's like raw butter and it's heavy metals, it's just an age on honor from this thing that I've, I've done myself and I know works. Uh, eating raw animal fats and raw butter, uh, a lot of it can help facilitate metals out. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's my take on dairy. I'm in the middle of it. I know the benefits. I know the negatives for the most part. No, that's the really balanced view. Very great. Very good points. Hey, so listen, I'm going to stop it here on, on this one because I, I could just go on forever. I got a ton of things we could chat about. I have to get you back on, man. Thank you so much. And, you know, as usual, before um, before you go, well, first of all, I'll say anybody listening to this, have a look down below because Asa got into a bit of the hormonal thing here, but really listen to his backstory and whatever. Have a listen to the the Brendan Murphy interview that he did, because it's real interesting, you know, where the where this has all come from and how how he's uh, how he's got fascinated in this. So I'll put a link to that underneath and also all, all other Asa's links and whatever. But where can people find you, Asa? What's going on? Where's your all, all your work they can look into? You got a whole load of scientific shit out there. It's brilliant. Go go for it. Yeah. Where can they find you. Yeah, most of it's on Facebook. I have the two groups. 
So I have my Facebook page. I'm not really posting a lot on that anymore. I just kind of keep it real professional and post cer certain scientific uh, posts. I have gutgoals.com, so gut-goals.com. Uh, that's my my business page. I have some articles on there that are really useful. I use them for clients like, hey, if you don't know about plant toxins, read this guide I made. It's a huge, gigantic guide about plant toxins, right? Or I go into candida and what candida does to your body. I write articles on there every now and then. Um, but the majority of my content's on Facebook. So my Facebook is facebook.com slash stop dysbiosis. Um, and then my groups are My Doctor Says. Uh, I, love, my doctor I love the name of that group. I think that's so cool. Well done. Love it. It was a play on words a long time ago. I started it, but um, it's been around for a while. We've steadily stayed at about 2,000 members, and I've kept it that way because I've wanted to keep it private, number one, but like uh, invite only for friends and family to integrate into it. Um, and so generally, that's been the model of it. So people can go in and ask for health advice, and then people who are knowledgeable in the environment, like a Phil Escott, can go in and talk to you about what you should do with the carnivore diet, whatever your question is. Uh, there's a lot of people in there, even Chafee's in there as well. Um, so then uh, there is, uh, but my more importantly, like what I'm doing now is like the polarity space of things, help people with their identities becoming more masculine and feminine. I have a polarity group for relationships to change your whole life. I've helped people to, when they've not been able to conceive, totally conceive, not just with gastrointestinal health changes, but lifestyle changes within polarity dynamics really important to your endocrine system, those lifestyle changes. Lifestyle changes. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. But generally, um, that's the other side of the, the science I start to produce about the endocrine system and hormones, not just with like diet, but all lifestyle and everything integrated. I even get spiritual about it. Like there's a whole, whole thing. It's like a triad. All of it matters. So yeah, uh, that's my stuff generally is those um, I'm really lazy about um, social media. So I generally tend to like, I rarely post things on Instagram. Instagram, you can see my Instagram, Ace of Santiago. I'm like the only Ace of Santiago. And it, it, it like the first half of it, like the, the top part, parts of me, you know, like that's like the real more masculine me. But like in the past, like there's a whole bunch of videos of me the way I used to be when I was really effeminate. Um, and so that can kind of tell you about like how powerful dry fasting is. Seeing like my transition, you wouldn't believe it. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's that uh, as far as contacting me. That's brilliant, man. Thank you. And I'm going to have to get you back on for all the sort of hormonal and spiritual stuff, because that's that's a side. I'd, I'd, um, it's even more interesting. But, you know, I wanted to get you on the basic stuff today. And thank you so much, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Keep her through cars and a wishing.